Look fantastic in a suit. Look fantastic in casual wear. Look fantastic in anything. Sound good. Smell good. Kiss good. Strut around with supreme confidence. Be uncannily successful at your job. Blow people away every time you say anything. Take six-hour lunches. Disappear for weeks at a time. Lie to everyone about everything. And drink and smoke constantly. Basically, be Don Draper. Hey, I'm Ben Bailey-Smith. And I'm Sasha Bates. And you are listening to Shrink the Box, where we put TV characters that we find utterly intriguing into therapy. So far, we've had Tony Soprano, Walter White, Beth Harmon and Omar Little on Sasha's couch. Me, I'm an actor. I engage in therapy myself. Love it, frankly. And Sasha here is a psychotherapist. We'll do a deep dive into a character from one of the best TV shows of the past 20 years and hopefully learn a few things about ourselves along the way. That sounds sounds lovely. Sasha, tell us about the clip we heard at the top there. That was John Hamm playing Don Draper in a sketch for the US comedy show Saturday Night Live in 2008. It's a parody of his character as the enigmatic advertising executive in Mad Men. Charming, flawed and irresistible to women. But it also shows how huge the show was and how it entered into the public consciousness. And that was after it aired in 2007 and then ran for seven seasons. Yeah, it was it was massive. I remember it being a real word of mouth type show. It was just one of those ones that rolled off the tongue. You've seen Mad Men. If you've seen Mad Men, oh, you've got to watch Mad Men. Mm-hmm. And we're going to hear a bit more of the parody version of Don <laughs> Draper later the serious version quotes on quotes even though there's quite a lot of laughs in mad men i I think is a kind of legendary show in some ways i personally i I felt like maybe it went on a state overstayed its welcome Mm. but i mean that first season which we'll be Mm. digging into is nearly flawless so much intrigue enigmatic was the word you used to describe don and, and you could use that to describe the whole show because I remember my sister saying once that the past can sometimes feel like a foreign country. Mm. And that's very much how this world feels like, feels so foreign because mm. so much in the world yeah. has changed. Yeah, and it, thank God. <laughs> it's, yeah, well, it's, it knows that, obviously, yeah. and it's constantly showing you, can you believe this shit used to happen? Mm. These guys have recreated the world and the type of men mm. that inhabited and thrived mm. in that world, they've created it with devastating detail. You think? Oh, they have. It just looks sumptuous. And uh, yeah, you kind of want to be there. Although no, I wouldn't really want to be there as a woman. You want to be there as a white, successful <laughs> yeah. man. <laughs> no, it, <laughs> exactly. Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, exactly. I mean, it's so cool. But it really does show us that innate need to project an image to sort of find the brand that is us, which I think we all kind of relate to, even though we might not be able to relate to, you know, the sexism and the homophobia and, and the whiteness that, that is that is in there. But I think behind that cool collected image of Don and of the show, it shows us how empty it is mm. really and how we really can't afford to fall for our own hype. It's not nearly as aspirational when you look behind the scenes. Couldn't agree more. Stay tuned, guys, as we investigate pesky fake identities, why ad men were scared of therapy and why Don has so much blooming sex. Oh, and uh, cocktails, smoking cigarettes upon cigarettes, ignoring the past at your peril and perfectly tailored suits. As ever, please expect full-on spoilers, the odd bit of cursing, because Ben Bailey-Smith, welcome to Shrink the Box. 
Right, so before we go any further, for those of you who need a reminder, because it's been a while, hasn't it? 2007. I'm going to try and do a quick season one recap, okay? Mad Men was created by Matthew Weiner, who, if you know your writers, was uh, one of the fantastic writers on The Sopranos. The first season introduced Don Draper and the world of New York City ad agency Sterling Cooper. Don's co-workers include firm partner Roger Sterling, John Slattery, the sly young account executive Pete Campbell, played by Vincent Kartheiser, the office manager Joan Holloway, played by Christina Hendricks, and the ambitious, I mean, unforgettable character Peggy Olsen, played by The Handmaid's Tale's Elizabeth Moss. Uh, the show follows the ad world and their sort of office relationships, but it also points the camera at Don's domestic life as he has a go sort of playing at the American dream. So here we are again. It's, it's, it's 2 p.m. Sasha's back from her lunch break and waiting in the communal space outside, flicking through a modern magazine and harumphing at the <laughs> pathetic diversity of, of the advertising within is uh, heavy smoking, heavy drinking, gorgeous <laughs> Don Draper. So tell us about this week's clients, Ash. Yeah, well, Don Draper is an advertising creative director, but his best advert really is himself. Mm. Um, and behind this presentation hides a very different man. And that man's name is Dick Whitman, who is a Korean war deserter. And he switched the dead lieutenant on Draper's dog's tags with his own, let his own family think he was dead and created this new life for himself. He currently lives in the suburbs with his wife, the lovely Betty, played by January Jones, and their two children in this first series. But he's also got a girlfriend called Midge in the city. So he's living a double life here too. And we see that he's really good at this this lying that he does to everybody and he needs to be good at it partly so he can keep that past he's so ashamed of hidden but also because it protects him in another way as well it protects him from having to contact any painful emotions we all fantasize a bit about that don't we like what if i just lived a completely different life and the idea that maybe i would be content and he's done it mm. and it still hasn't worked he's had to pretend and lie and cheat even within his new identity. Yeah. It's solved absolutely nothing. And that is fascinating. Mm, it's created more problems yeah, almost. That's the human element of this show. Something that I think we all have a tiny bit of that, that mm. little insecurity about who we are and how we present. Mm. Let's have a listen to a bit more of, of John Hamm on, uh, on SNL as Don. This time he's doing a, uh, a parody ad pitch for a completely useless hula hoop that is held up by braces or suspenders. Check this out. It's true, this hula hoop with suspenders doesn't do anything. But nowadays, when we're expected to maintain our jobs, our families, our bodies, and our mortality, isn't doing nothing the ultimate luxury? We spend our lives jumping through hoops. Isn't it time we relaxed inside of one? Because none of us are angels, but don't we all occasionally deserve a halo? Gentlemen, these suspenders aren't holding up some plastic ring. They're suspending reality. They're suspending our childhood. And this isn't just a hula hoop. It's the circle of life. (laughs) 
<laughs> Literally, I would, I would buy that from Amazon if there was a little video of John Hamm <laughs> selling it to me. That was from the sketch Two A-Holes Go to an Ad Agency in the 60s from Saturday Night Live. That's season 34, episode 6, directed by Don Roy King. We'll give you the full credits, including the team of writers for this and all the clips used at the end of this podcast. So here we go. Sasha, what's your first observation of Donald Draper? Well, like you say, completely gorgeous, completely. Mm, what a chin. Uh, yeah, and his suits as well are just as sort of clean cut and tailored and immaculate. And he is suave, sophisticated, successful, and sexy. But when he talks about his job, he's also really describing himself. There's a bit in it where he says advertising is based on one thing happiness. It's freedom from fear, reassurance that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, it's okay. You are mm. okay. And that is exactly what he's selling. He He's selling the image that is Don Draper and he has to sell it well. He has to sort of get people to buy into him as a brand just as much as he has to get them to buy into the brands that he is selling. And in a way, his whole life is an advert. He's got this perfect wife and his sort of two kids and the house in, in the suburbs. It, it is the American dream, but it is as empty as, you know, the sort of the Great Gatsby image of the American dream as well. There's another line that I really like in it that comes much later that Betty says, her mother said to her, you are creating a masterpiece. Don't let the brushworks show. Mm. And I really love that because, again, I think that sort of sums Don and this whole world up is that he wants to present the masterpiece and he doesn't want us to see the brushworks. But there's a lot of brushwork that's gone into creating um, Don Draper. He manages to sell products off the cuff with phrases, taglines that he comes up with uh, that are genius. To do it at work is one thing. To do it for your whole personality 24 hours a day is a whole other thing. So where the hell do you develop a skill like that? I mean, it's beyond casual lying or a bit of manipulation. Mm. Well, it's sort of desperation. It's life or death to him because... For him, the stakes are high and he believes that not only would he lose this this marriage, which isn't even a very happy marriage, he thinks he would lose his job. And this is what happens when Pete Campbell, who you mentioned earlier, mm. the, the very sort of sly and vicious mm. and ambitious... He's the account exec. The account exec, yeah. yeah that, that's it. I was trying to work out what his role was. He finds out Don's secret and he tries to blackmail him. And the irony is that actually Cooper, his boss, doesn't care. That was a real bombshell because mm. like... I remember really waiting. Yeah. You know, oh my God, when the secret comes out. At first I was disappointed. Then when I thought about it, I thought, no, that's an even bigger bombshell. Yeah. That you go right to the top and the guy's like, yeah, mm. and what? We all do that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if, if it makes him cooler and it's going to make us more money, who gives a shit? Yeah. And it made me think about the system as a whole. Yeah. Power and success trumps everything else. Mm. Um, but also, you see, it's not Don that is the great advertising exec it is dick whitman it's because it's dick, dick whitman, whitman yeah, but he wouldn't has, see it that way would no you? he Don wouldn't draper even with the alliteration as well it just sounds like the superhero yeah and dick yeah. whitman yeah know, yeah the, the name that's almost <laughs> like his surname almost rhymes with the word dick as well like it's just it's, <laughs> it just sounds like a loser i mean yeah. i'm talking about in his head mm. you know step three got a great name <laughs> hi i'm nathaniel snurpus Well, hello. Don Draper. Let's get me out of this skirt. And he and he looks the part, you know, he he's he's fortunate 
for some genetics in mm. in that he is this chiselled, good-looking guy with, with great hair. <laughs> like the casting of John Hamm is vital mm. because it adds to that whole suggestion of looks are deceiving and, and, and what somebody presents might not be who they, they really are. Yeah, and many of us present in a way that's not who we believe we really are. And for most of us, the stakes aren't as literally life or death as they seem for Don. But I think a lot of us can relate to the feeling. And in fact, it's so common that it was given a name. One of the early psychoanalytic theorists, Donald Winnicott, he called it the false self, meaning the mask that we use to hide our true self as he called it, which is the version of us that is more true, but we perhaps believe is less acceptable. So we have to hide it. And I mean, most of the characters in Mad Men are, are similarly portraying images they don't really feel. I mean, particularly the, the gay characters also have massively high stakes if they if they let out who they really are. We've got Don living, it's not even a du- double life seems to trite because he's created a double life within his assumed identity as well mm. so it's like a, it's multiple lives yeah. that he's he's yeah. juggling and we we all know in our everyday lives just harboring a secret or you know harboring a, 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 a small chunk of shame or guilt is enough to you know throw your day onto the rails to live at that level i mean what toll is that going to take on you Mentally and physically, he's got to keep looking the part, but mm. surely inside he's... Mm. Yeah, well, I, I think it could be one of the reasons why he drinks so much, but I think there is so much stress building up in, in him as the stakes get higher and higher, the more successful he, he becomes. And in fact, we see it with Betty because he's not the only one that's unhappy. They're all unhappy, really. <laughs> yeah. They're all hiding something. They're all trying to project an image that they don't really feel that's taking its toll. And Betty has this sort of strange phenomenon where her hands go numb. It's the impetus for to get her into therapy at, at the beginning. The, the numb hands that happen in the first episode cause her to crash the car. And again, I love the metaphor of like she's not in control of her own life. She can't drive her own her own car. Her hands are sort of tied. She's not steering her own course. So yeah, I mean, I talked, I think, in a, in a previous episode about how some of the things that go wrong with us physically can show what it is we're carrying. I think in The Sopranos, we talked about Pussy having a bad back because he was like almost like bent double with the, yeah, with the, the burden stress. of yeah, the secrets. The and change and tack a little bit. The, you know, we've been lucky enough to have the odd show that we've looked at that sort of mentions or deals with psychiatry head on. Mm. There is mention more than once of psychiatry in, in this show and it's... <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of newfangled ideas mm-hmm. in 1960, it's talked about with a lot of derision. There's one point where Roger Sterling says in episode two, he says, psychiatry is just this year's candy pink stove. Mm. Um, so <laughs> why do you think these men, and it is the men, why are they so dismissive, perhaps even frightened of the concept of, of, of therapy? Well, they're all about surface. And so the thought of admitting that there is something behind the surface and that they're not as perfect as as the image they project, that would feel really frightening. And I think they probably don't want their wives to go into therapy because they don't want their wives to realise just how constricted their lives are because then they might start asking for more Mm. from their lives than just being a 
somebody who's left at home while the husbands go out and have all the fun. But yeah, they're very derogatory towards it. And as a woman, you sort of watch it in horror at how the how they're treated. But also as a therapist, I watched it in horror at the uh, unethical nature. I mean, Don goes home and he rings Betty's psychiatrist and the psychiatrist oh, yeah, tells, tells him, him, updates him what, on what's going what's on. Going on. I mean, Outrageous. you know, the confidentiality um, issues there are, are really, really horrible. But again, it was all part of this world where men knew what was best for women and yes. uh, they treat and I guess the, infantilizing. There must have been a machismo element as well mm. around those, you know, very alpha males. Mm. You know, uh, yeah, show no weakness. We, we saw it in The Sopranos, didn't we, where Tony suggests that. Um, Maybe Chris mm. might get some help, yeah. you know, and and he says, "I'm I'm no mental midget," mm. you know. Yeah, and and I wonder if there's a bit of that with these guys. You know, they they look great, they run things, they believe that they are as powerful and as not in need of help as as the image they project. Mm. What's nice about that is that you can tell the writers know. Mm. Everybody behind this mm. understands that this world was messed up. Yeah. There were times, I remember when it first came out, watching it with my wife, and she'd be looking at me going, oh, men, you know. And I, it's not me. I'm not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not Don Draper. I'm not in Mad Men. Mm. I just suggested we watch it. I don't know. I haven't seen it. People said it was good. It's like the worst. And do you relate to that, that idea of having to portray a role? I Absolutely. don't mean in your acting life. I mean in your real life. Yeah. For me, the two are sort of linked as well because... Mm. The idea of being a performer, of putting yourself out there like that. I mean, I did 10 years of stand-up comedy. People are critiquing and judging you in the moment. Mm. That The whole thing of pulling back the mask is scary for everybody. Mm. One thing that keeps me awake at night is that I am a business mm. and I am the main product of that business. Yeah. It's not going to get to the end of the year and go, okay, let's wheel in Ben Bailey Smith <laughs> Mark II. No, it's me. Mm. Whether I'm... 25, 30, 35, 40, 65, mm. I still need to be this this yeah. product. And, and people so, want you to be that absolutely. product. So I've got to keep smiling. Yeah. I've got to keep waving. I've got to keep performing. And that pressure of being this product, it can be like exhausting and draining. And of course, you don't want mm -hmm. to be in the public eye or be on like... A, a really mainstream platform mm. and fucking lose it. Mm. But sometimes I felt like that. Yeah. I felt like that on Lorraine once. Oh, Imagine right. if I lost it on Lorraine. <laughs> <laughs> and what would losing it look like? Or yeah, would that's, have a, that's like? a good question. I remember I, I even watched the clip back one time because something that I said went in the paper so you could tell I must have been like on edge. I'm wearing my glasses. I never wear my glasses. I'm unshaven. I'm never unshaven. <laughs> so you could tell like there was something going on. <laughs> You know, to refer back to 1960, there is an element of if you are your own product, if you are a performer, you are sort of buttoned up when you maybe don't want to be. Mm. What would be the next issue you reckon you'd face with, with Don? He believes himself to be unlovable and that's completely understandable because we learn that he was born to a 22-year-old prostitute who died giving birth to him. He was beaten regularly by his father. His stepmother had absolutely no love for him. She called him a whore's son. So at every stage he was kind of... 
believed that he was, yeah, rejected and thought he was worthless. And I think it's interesting that he does choose Betty as, as a wife because together they're a bit like the figures on top of a wedding cake. They're as vacuous, really. They're all for show. They don't actually have any substance to them. And that's why it's an unhappy marriage. They're showing, they're doing, going through all the motions. They're showing the world. They are this perfect, beautiful couple with their gorgeous house and their gorgeous children. But there's nothing there. There's one really sad scene where he's asleep in bed. They're in bed together. He's asleep. And Bessie sort of leans over and whispers to him, who is in there? Because she hasn't got a clue. And he hasn't got a clue about her. I mean, like I say, he rings rings her therapist in the nighttime to to find out um, who she is. So it surprised me massively that he came close, if not did, find love. Mm. In, in in Rachel, yeah. What is it that she brings that can get in there, so mm. to speak? Well, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, she's another outsider in the sense that she's Jewish, which again can't have been that comfortable in the fifties and sixties. There was still a lot of anti-Semitism mm. around. In fact, there's some. <laughs> again, they're so awful and and yet funny that when when she comes in as a client. And they go running around the whole building trying to find somebody Jewish working there to show that they're not anti-Semitic. <laughs> and I think they find someone from the post room or something. I genuinely shove him in that the meeting. shit still happens now, man. <laughs> well, like, it probably does. Yeah, it probably <laughs> does. Yeah. Where's our one? So she knows what it's like to be an outsider. Mm. And I think she says to him at, at some point, I know what it's like to feel disconnected. But also she does seem to see him. She does seem to see beyond the facade in a way that Betty doesn't. I mean, Betty does the sort of like I said, the leaning over at night, whispering who's in there. Whereas Rachel actually does seem to see a bit of what's in there. When he first meets Rachel, and it's interesting that he does fall for her, because when he first meets her, he says he's never felt love because it doesn't exist. And he says, what you call love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons. You're born alone and you die alone. And this world just drops a lot of rules on you to make you forget that fact. Mm, That's beautiful. Mm. What a lovely sentiment. (laughs) (laughs) What a way to live. But that's what he's living with. That's why he's like he is, because that's that's his belief system. Well, after that intense start to uh, a session, with this week's client, I think it's time for a stiff drink. I'm going to have a Negroni. What do you fancy, Sash? I would like a martini with an olive because I think that makes me sound sophisticated. It does, but what the real me would like would be something like a pina colada, something <laughs> really tacky. <laughs> <laughs> All right, see you in a sec. Unless you're a subscriber, of course, in which case, I guess to Don Draper's horror, you will have no advertisements. Gimlet, martini, Harvey Wallbanger. This show is supported by BetterHelp. Uh, now, sometimes you're carrying a weight on your shoulders, but you can't find the right way to open up about it and maybe offload a bit to others. If we keep things bottled up, it can really affect us in a bad way. And therapy is a safe and anonymous place to air whatever's been troubling you. And I know this personally. It always feels better just to speak your truth. It, it, honestly, you genuinely feel lighter. And the moan can tell you all about feeling light or heavy. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, suited to your schedule. Fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash shrinkthebox today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash shrinkthebox. 
Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. All right, we are back. You'd be amazed how many Negronis you can down during an ad break. <laughs> and I have to say, my inhibitions are completely gone now, Sash. So let's talk <laughs> about fucking. <laughs> Why does Don have so much sex? Like, he he just never stops. And it's not just so much sex. It was just with one woman that he loved or whatever. It's with as many different women as possible. Was that is that similar to alcoholism or gambling? What's his deal? Yeah, I mean, I think he does it because he can. <laughs> I think there's no ethics in, in the 60s. There was no True. ethics for, for men. But yeah, I think he, it's another way of running away. It's another way of searching for love. I think there's all sorts of reasons why he does it. Also, like, verifying his image of himself like mm, he is yeah. he is gorgeous okay yeah. yeah so i am let me just double check <laughs> yep yep i am yeah yes. here's another one yep He's looking for a, a mirror and he's not actually getting the reflection he wants because people are sleeping with him because he's gorgeous, which is not actually going to make him any more lovable. But mm. I think every time he is hoping this might be the way that I find value in myself because he didn't have love from his parents didn't even know his mother who died giving birth to him, I think you know he didn't get that that reflecting back he didn't get that mirroring which a uh, uh, early psychotherapist called Kohut said was really necessary to get a sense of self that without a mirror we can't ever know who we are which he doesn't really so mirroring it can be positive and negative so, oh, yeah. so you're, you're 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 talking about kids like so copying their parents' behaviour or habits? Or? Yeah, and the cohort thought of what makes a self is you can only be yourself if you have yourself mirrored back. So you see who you are via the love in your parents' eyes. So you see wow. yourself through oh their God. eyes and you see that, yeah, I am worthwhile. So that sort of mirroring in that sense is really, really valuable. And he didn't get it. So that's why mm. he turns everyone else into a mirror that is reflecting back a sort of distorted version. It's like, oh yeah, we'll love you if you are chiseled and immaculate and make us money. That is, I mean, that's amazing, first mm. and foremost, to think of. It's also kind of terrifying. I think if, if you're a parent mm. listening right now, that feeling of, oh my God, am I, am I making enough eye contact with my kids? <laughs> am I looking at them with enough love? Yeah, you don't want to create a little Don or Donella, Donette. <laughs> Do you think like that thing that he said about love, you think that is something that he says to sort of not have to really deal with that is that being the thing that he really wants. And yet in these multitude sexual acts, he would love the, some part of Dick mm, Whitman anyway, yeah. would love it to be 
Love. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I don't think he knows that, but subconsciously, no. yes, absolutely. There's a there's a little boy, there is little young Dick Whitman in there who who doesn't want to be called a horse son, who wants to believe that there's um, there's a nice mum figure out there. And in, in fact, I think that's why he marries Betty. I don't think it is just about. Um, bolstering his image. There's a point when he says to Betty something like, um, oh, I would have loved to have had a mother like you, so kind and like an angel or or something. And I think in a way, that's another reason why he married her. He's sort of trying to lock away this perfect mum figure that he never had. And she sort of fulfills the bill. But I think that's also why I don't think he doesn't seem to have that much sex with his wife. And I think it's because if he's got her in this image of the perfect mother figure, he's not going to... Exactly. So that would be another reason why he looks for it elsewhere with people that aren't mother figures. Rachel's not much of a mother figure. Midge isn't. Midge is sort of the antithesis of Betty. She doesn't Mm. want commitment. She's kind of like a free spirit. She's an artist. She doesn't want his money. Marrying Betty was a way of trying to find a perfect mother figure that he never had. It's pretty dark. Yeah. The start that he had. Do you reckon there could have been a way for for Don to just live in a less duplicitous way, like, you know? Well, it's really interesting because, like I said before, I don't think it's really Don that is the clever one. It's Dick, it's Dick that's yeah. doing it. Dick clearly has the capacity. It's Dick's early survival techniques yeah, which blown makes up him, into, yeah. on, onto this massive level, basically. But who knows, with the environment that he lives in, maybe he would never have got an interview at Sterling Cooper if he didn't look as though he came from the sort of the officer class because he wouldn't have looked the parts. And maybe he would never have got that job in in the first place. So maybe like a loving foster home and then a, a warm and giving adoptive family mm-hmm. at an early stage, you know, find out that his dad's being physically abusive and, mm-hmm. and there's verbal abuse as well. So he goes into foster home, which is loving, goes into an adoptive home, which is very caring, very sensitive to his needs, considering what he's been through as a little boy. Maybe he becomes an upstanding member of society, but a librarian. Yes, quite quite possibly. I mean, the thing is, there's so much past. There's so many different points at which things could have changed. There's a really telling scene where he has first come back to America after swapping dog tags with Don Draper in the Korean War. And he's supposedly accompanying his own coffin, Dick Whitman's coffin, back. And it gets delivered to his family on the station platform. And he looks at them out of the window and the train takes off. He could have got off at that point and confronted his family and say, actually, I'm not dead, but I want a whole new life. But he absolutely shuts the door on on that. And the reason why I think that scene is really telling is because there's a woman, he's watching out the window and there's a woman says, can I buy a soldier a drink? And it's almost like at that point, he's turning his back on the family. Yeah. Okay. Booze, women. Mm. I'm, I'm hurtling forwards. And when his brother discovers him in New York and comes to find him and wants to say, let's look at our past together. Don burns the photo. He doesn't want, he wants to burn the past. He doesn't want to go back. And he says to Adam, my life only goes in one direction and that's forward. And that's all he does. He barrels forward. So I think there was, there's multiple points at which, yeah, he could have done things differently, but he just feels like the train. He's got to keep going forward. He's got to keep with the booze, keep with the women, because that stops him having to get off at the platform and confront his past. Damn. The war element as well. He would have yeah. like been around death and destruction yeah. and 
maybe had to kill some guys, mm-hmm. you know, obviously mm-hmm. new people that got killed. So there's all that to yeah. factor in as well. He could have become a violent psycho. This is the thing. There are so many points at which we could change anything about ourselves. Mm. But also the fact that we haven't, that all goes into making us who we are, which again, it's like when his past actually does get revealed and uh, Cooper says a a man is whatever room he's in. Everything that he learned led him up to that moment. But it doesn't mean that he has to say, okay, well, I am my person. I've got to keep it hidden. Cooper's giving him the option of saying, yeah. well, be be this new person. Just keep doing the job. Yeah. And actually, he could choose to celebrate his past at that point. The secret's out. He could say, do you know what? If I hadn't gone through all those things, I probably wouldn't be as good as I am. But he still doesn't want to. He still wants to keep it, keep it yeah, hidden. Yeah. And again, that sort of relates, I suppose, to the time. Yeah. You know, absolutely. now... If you could come out with that, oh, mm. my God, you get your own series. <laughs> Definitely have a bigger podcast than us. Yeah. <laughs> but what I really take from what you just said, Sash, is that there's never zero hope. No. You know, no matter how far down that line you've gone with self-destruction or or damaging the lives of others, as long as you're still walking, you're still alive, there's an opportunity to turn that thing around. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. yeah. It's not going to be easy, but like you start off by approaching things honestly yeah. and openly. Yeah. And and maybe not being afraid to uh to travel in a different direction. Yeah, this is the thing. You can always there's always going to be more stations on that train. You mm. don't have to keep keep on at it. And we can use our past to learn from and make different decisions. We don't ha- it doesn't have to be a bad thing. We don't have to burn it. I mean, I've had clients in their 70s, you know, that still want to come in and 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 help. And I think why a lot of people go into therapy is because they kind of think I may only have a decade or two decades left. I don't want them to just carry on barreling forwards. I want to be able to stop, confront my past, look at what it is, because that might make me happier in the long run. And I suppose it should be said as well, in my experience of therapy, when you go back, if you look at past trauma or you look at painful elements of your past, you can do that with a professional in a very gentle way. It doesn't have to be the terrifying journey that you think it is in your head before you've actually talked about it yeah you can be guided through that in a way that really doesn't hurt and Uh, that you can stop at any time so you can you you can inch your way around it at whatever speed you want so you know there's hope for every single person yeah Um, absolutely and therapy can be as as whatever you want it to be mm -hmm. really there's the thing that we do is talking about the talking about it so if people do Hmm. feel they've got this massive secret or this big big trauma and they just can't even talk about it we can talk about what might it be like to talk about it Mm. so you don't even have to you can always stay at a few well not always eventually you you would want to get get to the heart of it but you can spend as many weeks or months as you want talking about the talking about it about why it would feel you know in in Don's case it's going to cost you more yeah (laughs) well yeah I mean that is the downside of therapy is it is expensive um and especially if it is going to take a long time yeah but but there are alternatives out there guys um have a look around and and in the meantime as well please do tell us what you think and any other characters you want to see on the couch because we'd love to to be reacquainted with some of these classic tv shows uh so many that I miss all you need to do is email us at shrink the box at something else.com that's Shrink the box as something without a G else.com. This week's post bag is looking incredibly girthy. Thanks for your emails so far, guys. We genuinely, we really appreciate it. And uh, 
who have we got here? It's Dave Walsh, who says, hey, guys, can I suggest you analyse Kami from The Bear? He has a lot of baggage. I, I love The Bear. Did you watch The I Bear? I haven't seen it. It's oh, on my list. Know, I really want to like watch it. it. Yeah, It's one of those shows that's so realist in its mm-hmm. tone that it almost feels like a behind the scenes on like a Gordon Ramsay Nightmare Kitchens or Kitchens from Hell or whatever his show's called. You know, it's all set in the kitchen of this like sort of crumbling deli in Chicago. And Dave's exactly right. Kami is this kind of complex character who's, he's young, but he's trying to tap into something that's that's dead. You know, something that's, that's passed on this old Italian-American tradition of making like the greatest sandwich mm-hmm. when it feels like everything around the restaurant and, and restaurant culture has, has long since moved on. And he's battling with the old and the new and Ooh, his, uh, interesting. you know, his cultural uh, hang-ups as well. It's, it's a great shout, Simon. I'd love to do that. It's actually, it's on Disney Plus right now if you want to check it out. Go to justwatch.com and find out where else you can see it uh, if Disney Plus is not for you. We've got one here from Julia Blackwell who says, thank you so much for creating Shrink the Box. I would love it if one of these characters was analysed. And Julia, very helpfully, has given us a list of who she'd love to see. Eve Palastri from mm. Killing Eve. I've not seen Killing Eve. I need oh, to get around to yeah. that. yeah. Got, got to get onto that. She's yeah. great, Eve Palastri. Yeah. so late on that one. Mm. Uh, Catherine Kaywood from Happy Valley. I mean, she is always... I think she might come up every week yeah. in our emails because yeah. why not? And As we will should. do her. Stay patient, she'll come. Gemma Foster from Dr. Foster's a great shout. Mm-hmm. It will give me annoying flashbacks of how close I was to getting a role on uh, Dr. Foster as uh, Gemma's lover. We had a lot Ooh. of steamy love scenes oh. to do. In a way, sometimes things happen for a reason. I don't think I was quite ready for the, the full body shave. So <laughs> <laughs> that's probably for the best. Cersei Lannister from Game of Thrones. Another one I've never seen. No, me either. Never seen that. Big I'm almost scared of a Game of Thrones suggestion because yeah, you we'll know we're going to have to really dig into that. <laughs> yeah. There's so many series. But yes, we do have eyes on Cersei. Walter White Jr. Mm. from Breaking Bad. Be wonderful if a disabled character could be part of the series. It's so funny that you say that, Julia, because I was thinking about that. I was listening back to, I think it was our very first episode or maybe the second. Sasha, you were amazing, I have to say. But I was annoyed at something that I said. I said something about, you know, we'll find out, uh, you know, what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman. And I thought, you know, there's so many different types of human being now Mm. uh you know in terms of like non-binary and like where you stand with how you see yourself in your gender and then i was also thinking yeah of course there's able-bodied disabled characters there's there's so many like the spectrum of being a human being Mm. yeah is way deeper than black or white Mm. yeah great shout julia and we will definitely add all of these to our list obviously we can't guarantee we're going to cover every one But let's see where the series takes us. Who knows? We might still be here in 10 years' time, (laughs) scraping the barrel, like doing Blakey from On the Buses or something. (laughs) You know, so you never know. And please do follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts to get your new episodes and share the love. Tell everybody, you know, because it helps us to make more. And that's why we're here. We want to make more. We want to talk more. We want to find out more about you. We want to find out more about ourselves. That's what it's all about. Um, And if you want to listen to Shrink the Box ad-free, by the way, subscribe to Extra Takes. Your subscription is going to get you ad-free episodes of this show and ad-free episodes from our friends over at Kermode and Mayo's Take. And they have got 
so much extra juice now. Extra interviews, you know, when you want to hear more from that that amazing uh, actor or director who, who's on the show. Start your free trial now by clicking Try Free at the top of the Shrink the Box show page on Apple Podcasts or by visiting extratakes.com. Thanks to our production team. Production management is Lily Hambly. Assistant producer is Bashak Ayrton. Social media is Jonathan Amieri. The studio engineer is Teddy Riley. And mix engineer is Jay Beal. The senior producer is Selena Reem and executive producer is Simon Paul. Sasha, who's going to be hitting the couch next time? Oh, well, we've got someone else who is adept at creating new identities. Ooh. Have a listen to the trailer. Hmm. Wonder and vision. Aren't we a five pair? This is our home now. I want us to fit in. Oh, this is going to be a gas. Where did you two move from? How long have you been married? And why don't you have children yet? Our story. I think what my wife means to say is that we moved from... Moved from where? Married when? Damn it, why? Oh, Arthur, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Why would you think that? Because you are. <laughs> we are an unusual couple, you know. Oh, I don't think that was ever in question. Oh, man, what a character. It's Wanda from WandaVision. What a show. One of the most interesting characters in the, in the sort of past couple of years, I think, to pop up on TV. Everybody, before next week, please go back, watch it all again, and um, hopefully Sasha's going to clear everything up. Yeah, well, we'll do our best, but you don't really even need to know that much that, about how Wanda and, and Vision come from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because if you watch it just as a standalone series... That's true, yeah. ...which I did, I'm not a, a Marvel fan, I just watched it on, on its own, it's a really moving series about grief. I mean, it's incredible the way it, it really nails all the different shapes and flavours and emotions that go go on for a grieving person. Yeah, they just happen to be superheroes. They just happen to be superheroes. This is a good way of doing it. I mean, mm. you know, like in The Sopranos on episode one, you know, it's about family and, and, and all of this pain and, and, and grief and suffering, but they just happen to be murderers. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people would say that WandaVision is like the most sophisticated of everything that, that Marvel's done. And uh, I think they might they might be right because you've got the period element as well. You know, just like we've been talking about with Mad Men, it's, it's a very specific sort of era or couple of eras that, that we're looking at in this show uh, and, and the, the set design and the costumes play a big part in that and everything comes together to sort of build a mystery that gives the viewer a lot of credit it, it assumes that we are intelligent and that's my favorite approach yeah. to any form of television so i'm oh yeah i'm really looking forward to this me too but hopefully no underpants outside our trousers no i prefer just just pants. I'd, if I'm if I'm gonna display pants, I just go no trousers and just have to deal with my hairy hairy legs and uh, unsightly um, calves. All right. Well, let's hope it warms <laughs> up outside. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I should have said weather permitting. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Ta-da.
So as promised, here are the credits for the clips used in today's podcast. The audio at the top starring John Hamm and the clip about having a great name starring John Hamm and Amy Poehler are from a sketch called Don Draper's Guide to Picking Up Women. And the clips about the hula hoop and Don and friends offering us cocktails just before the break starring John Hamm, John Slattery and Will Forte, are from a sketch called Two A-Holes Go to an Ad Agency in the 1960s. Both of these sketches are from Saturday Night Live, season 34, episode 6 in 2008, hosted by John Hamm and directed by Don Roy King. Uh, These can be found, if you're interested, on the Saturday Night Live channel on YouTube. And the writers are Doug Abels, James Anderson, Alex Bays, Jessica Conrad, Steve Higgins, Colin Jost, Eric Kenwood, John Lutz, Seth Myers, Lorne Michaels, John Mullaney, Simon Rich, Perry Sachs, Marika Sawyer, Akiva Schaefer, John Solomon, Emily Spivy, Kent Sublett, and Yorma Taconi. Because you need a lot of writers to make funny happen. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week.